Welcome to Behind the Wings, a new podcast by Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum. And we've got a lot to explore. Stories about how history shapes aviation today, trailblazers in space, and up-close looks at iconic aircraft of the past, present, and future. Yes, it is time to go Behind the Wings. Hi, friends. I'm your host, Rick Crandall. With me, as always, is Wings Over the Rockies president and CEO, John Barry. Today's show is a conversation with Robert Arnold, the grandson of Hap Arnold, the father of the Air Force. John, what do we have for folks today? Hey, Rick, let's start with what we mean by father of the United States Air Force. You know, he started flying with the Signal Corps back with the Wright brothers. In World War II, he directed air activities for the nation's global war against Germany and Japan. Under him, the air arm, now get this, Rick, grew from 22,000 officers and enlisted with 3,900 planes to nearly 2.5 million men and 75,000 aircraft. An amazing accomplishment and General Arnold's influence on the development of air power was compelling. This is going to be a really fun conversation, no doubt about it. Boy, fun and fascinating, and I'm going to jump right into it. Let's get started. Robert Arnold, welcome to the show. Great to be here with you, gentlemen. Well, we're delighted to have you, and certainly from the standpoint of being the grandson of General Hap Arnold, you know, we mm-hmm. often refer to as the father of the United States Air Force. But what an amazing career. I mean, uh, let's start from the beginning, the point where he got into flying airplanes. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of a really unique story. I would say history had things in mind for him because unlike many of his brethren, this pathway leads him to uh, the moment where he is supremely qualified to do all these things. He ends up at West Point uh, in the class of 1907 completely by accident. His older brother, Tom, had gotten an appointment. Tom decides he's not going to go to West Point. Uh, his father, who had worked very hard to get that appointment for him, said, well, somebody's got to go. And so uh, Hap was there. Uh, and so he went. Um, but he always he's dreaming of going to the United States Cavalry, which at that point is a serious part of the United States Army. And in those days, the hierarchy was kind of uh, the engineers, the cavalry, the artillery and the infantry. Uh, that was kind of the bottom of the rung at West Point when he graduated. And that's where they stuck him. And he was not particularly happy about that. But he goes off and, and pursues that and has quite a, uh, adventures in the Philippines and things. Uh, but he's thinking about, where do I get this career going someplace? Uh, along the way, he has a couple of interactions with flight. On the way back from the Philippines, uh, when that tour ends, he loops through Europe, which he could do at that time. And he uh, wanders into Paris in 1909. And he's walking the streets of Paris, uh, looking at all these sites that he's read about. And there's this thing hanging from the front of a a building there. It's a newspaper office. And it's Louis Blériot's plane, which has just crossed the English Channel. He actually looks up at this thing and he says, if one, why not many? And then he returns to the United States. He's stationed uh, in the New York City area, and he witnesses uh, Wilbur Wright's famous flight around Manhattan and actually sees it close up and sees the whole thing going on. Uh, and then about a year or so later, the Army says, you know, if any of you people are crazy enough to want to join this flying thing, um, there's promotion opportunities here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he says, sure. 
that's all the whole stream that takes him to this place. And uh, he ends up uh, at Huffman Prairie in what is now Wright-Patterson Air Force Base with Orville Wright and the guys and, uh, and learning how to fly uh, with his buddy Tommy Milling. And uh, they become the first two uh, Army officers sent to the Wright School under the contract. Yeah, to put this in context now, you know, here he is. You know, Wright uh, brothers fly for the first time in 1903. Right. Now, he gets excited right. about this visiting Paris, you know, because, you know, the United States was not very much interested in airplanes, especially the military. And, and that's why Wright brothers sent the airplane over to Paris a lot. And a lot of the things that are part of the airplane are, are French names like ailerons and fuselage and empennage. That's right. So he gets excited. And now we're let's say we're in 1911. Now, he didn't get taught right. by the Wright brothers, but he got taught about the same school. So let's talk a little bit about that. Well, okay, so here's what happens. Orville Wright does the ground schools. Mm -hmm. They actually have a really crude simulator thing, which looks kind of like a playground toy thing. Uh, Orville goes from flying with Tommy, and, uh, and Hap goes flying with Al Welch. Uh, Al is the Wright brothers, what we call chief test and demo pilot. That's what we would call it today. He's their guy. He and Hap get along really well. And they got to remember now, you're going to solo in about 15 minutes in this thing and set off on your own because nobody knows any better. I mean, it's an amazing thing. Robert, I'm trying to imagine this time in history from, from Hap's perspective, right? I can't imagine just trying to process everything he sees and, and coming to that one, this is what I'm destined to do kind of moment. Putting him at the Wright operation, the Wright brothers' operation in 1911, it's it's you can fit the entire aviation business into a room around a table, because the Wrights are doing everything. They're doing weather forecasts. They're doing engineering. They're doing production. They've got legal and promotion and pilot training and planning and where is it going and and this and, and the neat thing about it is that the army has shrewdly negotiated meals with the Wright family for Tommy and Hap Arnold okay which means that they sit at the table and eat with the Wright family and the Wright family even though Wilbur's over in uh, in France pretty much at that point I sit there and the, the bishop which is the father and Catherine who is the sister and and Orville they sit there and argue it out I mean they, they have kind of like spirited conversations about all this the subject of this thing called flying and he's sitting there taking this all in so he's seeing the whole scope of uh, aviation aircraft production and operations up close and personal in a way no one else does uh, and this leads him to start thinking about stuff uh, he's a pretty methodical guy and a very practical guy, and he starts taking things apart, which is what he's going to do any number of times in his career where he has the moment to do that, to peel this apart, to take its pieces and decide what's important. And this has huge consequences as the rise of American air power goes forward. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, 1911, I got to suddenly you know, eight years after the Wright brothers first flew. But now he's there, he's getting trained, and he flies for about a, a little over a year and a half and has right. almost a death you know, experience uh, and almost crashed right. the airplane. So tell us what the impact of that was on him. Oh, well, well it's huge. In fact, in fact, what happens, and I've got the date here, where is it? Yeah, it's 1912. Uh, he's flying the first aerial spotting of artillery at Fort Riley, Kansas. I mean, this is the first time anybody does this. And he puts in what uh, is described as an accelerated stall. 
and no one has ever survived or knew what an accelerated stall was. It wasn't like today where, you know, the test pilots go out and ring out the airplane and try all kinds of stuff. I mean, nobody knew what it was. And he falls 300 feet in 10 seconds and somehow pulls this out. And he has no idea why he survives. No idea. And that's why he decides, you know, I can't do this. I'm going to ground myself. I can't take this uncertainty. And he's also getting married, by the way, which is another thing. The plane he's flying in, the Wright Model C, is known as the pilot killer. It kills six Army pilots, and 100% of all of them are destroyed. One of the pilots who dies in this is that same Al Welch I talked to you about earlier, who is one of the guys he respected as being the guy who knew most about flying airplanes. They're all dead. So he, he survives when others don't. And they put him on the staff at the Signal Corps, which is running the air service at that point. And now he has an opportunity to do what? They send him out to talk to people who are building, designing stuff. So now he begins to meet all of these people at these various little companies. And he's the kind of guy who says, hey, tell me something I don't know. How does this work? I'm interested. So he becomes friends with all of these people and starts developing ideas about what it's all about. Uh, what, what should an army pl a plane be designed to do? How about maintenance and logistics? He's thinking already through this about how do we supply this stuff? How do we put it in the field? What kind of uh, uh, characters do you need? How do I get the parts there? How do we train people? He and Tommy Take, uh, take and chart out the first uh, diagram of the right plane, for example, with all the pieces listed. There's actually existed a diagram of it. So this is, this is again, starting this whole thing happening because he's not dead. And literally, he's not dead because he grounds himself. Yeah, it's fascinating because, you know, he, he's, he's grounded himself for three years, you know, and right. he's getting that kind of knowledge. What was interesting was he got a reputation when he won the McKay Trophy you know, in 1912, before he grounded himself. And right. then he's doing this stuff. So people recognize him as someone who knows what he's doing. And, but now yeah. he's getting ready to move forward and World War One starts. So let's right. pick it up from there. Well, yeah, what happens, he's been in the Philippines for a tour uh, back into the infantry, as the family said. On his way back to the United States in his troop ship, which must have taken forever in those days, he gets a radiogram saying, by the way, we would like you to get back in the air service part of the game. And, and if you do this, we're going to promote you. So he says, OK. So he goes back down there as a supply officer and he, he can't take it anymore. He's got to get in an airplane. It's really getting to him. And he has told uh, my grandmother he's not going to fly. and He's going to do this. He's going to be all safe. And so he's down there like, not when am I going to get out of here? And then World War I ramps up for the United States and bingo. They need this guy. They've got like 12 people that know what they're doing, and he's one of them. And so he convinces the Army, who does not want to let him go to the front because they're relying on him, to go over there to brief General Pershing on this magical new weapon that they've got and explain and to set up demonstrations for us. He talks him into doing this. So they, they say, okay, you can go over to the front. This is now in the summer of 1918. Um, you can go over there and do that but you're not going to do any of that combat stuff. Oh, no, sir, I wasn't thinking of anything like that. So he gets on a troop ship, and he gets over to the front, and he's supposed to report to Pershing, well, the hell with that. I'm going to go find a buddy I know who's got an airplane, and I'm going to go shoot something. <laughs> so he, he gets himself to the front. He arrives there. 
on the morning of November 11th, 1918. <laughs> <laughs> the end of the war. And he yes. gets himself gets himself in an airplane and he flies a sortie over the lines. <laughs> That's which is amazing. which is which is the closest he's ever going to get to flying combat in his entire <laughs> career. <laughs> By World War II, he, he knows the uh, the ultra secret, the Manhattan Project. He's got it all, and they're not going yeah, to let him get close to any of that. <laughs> you you've described something that you know there's themes here that are starting to formulate. You know, he has some career-ending challenges, and let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about that with Billy Mitchell. Because uh, he gets offered another chance. Uh, he says, you're either be court-martialed or you can resign. Right. So let's tell about that story <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, this is another one. I mean, there's a bunch of these. Okay, so so Billy Mitchell is his buddy, and half is one of his, um, you know, his young Turks, shall we say. And there's a bunch of them. But he is the hero of all these people. In fact, my father... Uh, is named after him. Every kid in the Air Force is named Billy at a point because they're all naming the kids Billy. So they're all in Washington at this point, and Mitchell is accused the, the War Department, the Navy Department of incompetence and killing people and all this other stuff, and makes a really big enemy of the guy you don't want to make an enemy of, which would be the President of the United States. Um, you know, Calvin Coolidge uh, becomes a personal enemy of Billy Mitchell. Okay, that's where it starts to go wrong. So eventually, Mitchell goes a step too far, and they, they are going to court-martial him, and that's very famous. They put him on trial. Uh, Hap Arnold actually testifies on his behalf uh, at the court-martial. My family knows that they all have to leave Washington because there's death threats for, against the family for testifying, testifying for Mitchell. Um, and uh, at, at a point, uh, it's over, and Mitchell is exiled out to uh, having the office in the men's room at San Antonio, somewhere like that. It's very famous. Um, and, and Hap Arnold still got the wind up. So, so, so he's doing things. He's, uh, writing things under pseudonyms and leaking stuff to the press and making this whole kind of thing known. And he gets caught. He and his buddies get caught. And, uh, the boss, uh, which is Mason Patrick at the time, um, comes up to him and said, uh, you, you can't have this. You, you must resign. And he says, no. You're going to have to court-martial me. I demand a court-martial. This is my right as a military officer, and I demand it. And so at this point, after going through this with Billy Mitchell, um, they decide they're not going to have two of these. And Patrick says to my grandfather, what's the worst posting in the entire air service that we could send you to? And he says, Fort Riley, Kansas. He says, you're there tomorrow. You're out of here. So the, the whole family decamps for Fort Riley, Kansas, which is the home of the U.S. Cavalry. And they leave, they, they're out of town in 24 hours. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that fast. You are out of town. <laughs> and now for a quick announcement about membership at Wings. If you enjoy listening and want to support Behind the Wings in our mission, let me tell you how. Support Wings mission by becoming a member for awesome perks like free admission to both locations and free access to other cultural institutions around the world. Join a great community of aerospace fanatics and lifelong learners. Use the code SEASON1 for a 20% discount. Offer valid for new members through the end of October 2022. To learn more, visit wingsmuseum.org slash membership. And now, back to the show. So he is definitely a survivor in the bureaucratic world, even in those days. Uh, but, you know, then we start working up to the issue of World War II. And, you know, his expertise, I mean, his knowledge, his focus on R&D, his 
ability to talk logistics and, of course, his expertise in Washington that he's already had some experience with, good and sure. bad, yeah. uh, allows him to be really the guy to go to. So let's talk about the working up to World War II and going forward. Okay. Well, the, the, he's, he's, he starts working his way back. Uh, and he, he does that by doing doing things well and learning this thing we would now call networking. Um, so he starts working his way back. They send him to Leavenworth Command and General Staff School. He hates that, but nonetheless, he gets that taken care of. Um, he ends up getting important assignments because he performs well. So eventually, he ends up in March Field as the uh, Western operator, which is now GHQ Air Force. He's the, running the major Air Force operation at March Field. March Field is where he really makes it happen. Um, that's where he stages out of there the, uh, the Alaskan flight with the B-1 bombers, which is very publicly known at the time. He also uh, crisscrosses with the Caltech and uh, high-tech operators in the in the LA area through there. Also the Hollywood crowd, they become really close with the Hollywood crowd uh, and the press and the political crowd all crisscross and march field for him. Uh, this creates a network of people which are going to pay off, including uh, one that's very important for him, which is Elliot Roosevelt. Uh, the, pre the president's son, uh, drops into March Field one Sunday afternoon, as apparently he was wont to do, and say, entertain me. And it turns out that Happ and B, Arnold are really good at that, and they just happen to have a whole thing going on with uh, people like Amelia Earhart, Howard Hughes, and all these other people. And so they just fit Elliot Roosevelt right in, and, and Elliot feels really warm and happy about that uh, and goes off to Washington. Well, a couple years later, uh, the chief of the Air Force, uh, Tubby Westover, uh, dies sadly in, a car, in an airplane crash in Burbank uh, and half is in line to become the chief. Uh, at this point, all those people who remember the Mitchell court-martial start popping up in the U.S. Army general staff. And they don't want this hot-headed crazy being the head of the Air Service when things are just sort of quieting down. So there's a campaign to get him. Uh, there's a slur campaign that he was a drunk in Hawaii. He was never stationed there. It was all kinds of really ugly stuff like that. So, but luckily he has a friend and his friend is Elliot Roosevelt. So the two of them uh, convince uh, Franklin Roosevelt that this Arnold guy isn't really the rat creep that all of these people have been saying. And so he gets the job. Okay, so I remember I mentioned that his boss, Tubby Westover, dies in this air crash in, in Burbank and becomes chief. And the Secretary of War tells him, you can no longer fly single-seat airplanes. You won't go along with this, you're out. You will not be chief. And he says, okay, so he never flies a single-seat airplane again. And it just drove him nuts. Uh, there's a great picture I've got of, of Half Arnold and Chuck Yeager down at Edwards right after the Mach 1 flight. And, and, I, and I can just see a look on his face. He wants to know what it's like. He really wants to know. He wants to go fast. He liked motorcycles. He liked fast cars. Uh, legendary in the family for driving fast and straight lines. I mean, it just, <laughs> it's all of this sort of thing like that. But that's why he ends up as chief just before World War II, when it was unlikely that he probably would have. But he had this, this now this network of people, and he is in the right guy at the right place at the right time because of all of those things.
So, you know, now World War II has started. Yes. And we're in the middle of it. So let's talk about, you know, the growth of the oh, uh, sure. Air Corps. I mean, at that time, it becomes the Army Air Force yeah. now. Well, I think at the eve of World War II, they've got about 200,000 uh, people of all ranks. I mean, that's the entire strength. At its peak, it's over 2.4 million. I mean, and that happens in about four years. Uh, it comes from like like 100 first-line aircraft, I mean, total, and a lot of junk, but I mean, about 100 first-line aircraft. At its peak, it's operating something like 79,000 airplanes of all types. I mean, this all happens at speed. I mean, an amazing speed. Um, and the growth of the production uh, and all of that. And, and the amazing thing, it works pretty damn well. I mean, his World War I experience had been none of this worked well. He had spent a lot of years thinking about it and saying, what did we do wrong? What can we do better? Uh, and talking to people about it. So it's just astonishing. And a lot of that is because he knows these people. Um, there's the famous one that before D-Day, he calls up Donald Douglas and says, I need another 200 C-47 transports and I need them before uh, late spring. Okay. So... <laughs> so there's there's no there's no rebuttal. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just call him. I'll, I'll just call him up and ask him, right? You know, and, yeah, and, right. and yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no contract. <laughs> there's no negotiation. There's no jag. <laughs> I need you to I need you to build these, and the and the paperwork will follow. Okay. Um, uh, there, there's there's a one I like a lot, which is the B twenty nine story. Um, the B twenty nine was his biggest technical gamble. It, it's really the only airplane of consequence uh, that's really not operational before before Pearl Harbor. Um, and uh, it's so far ahead of its time. Uh, he has bet the, the future of the Army Air Force on that plane. Uh, it is the biggest single uh, financial pro uh, money project for the uh, U.S. military in World War II. Um, it's got lots of problems. Uh, and he has promised the president uh, that it will be operational in China by a certain date. Uh, and the heat is on. And Boeing is not performing. Um, and so he finally goes out uh, to Kansas, where the plant is, and marches down the production line and finds a particular airframe there. He signs his name on the side of it, and he says, I want this airplane out that door by this date or Boeing will never get another contract. And they knew he could do it, right? Because he already had a backup. He had a, he had a backup in play. You know, they're, they're making the Devastator and they know it too. Uh, and Boeing goes completely crazy and says, oh my God. And so they start sending them all these little glowing little updates on this chassis and little happy photos of their little people thing they're polishing and all that sort of stuff. So finally, they have the big rollout of the airplane. By this time, they call it the General Arnold Special just because of that. Um, they, they, they have this big, huge rollout to photograph the entire staff of the plant. All the workers are around it. They've got bands and they've got all this, all this stuff and they send in pictures of it. But of course, what they don't tell them is the plane doesn't work. It just looks like a plane. <laughs> so anyway, they don't find out that till later. Anyway, but uh, that, 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 that's, that's, one of my, that's one of my favorite stories of the whole bunch. That's amazing, you know, dossier that he's got on people and, and the thing. So let's move forward a yeah. little bit on uh, World War II, you know. So now, you know, the B-29 was good. He was interested in R&D. Right. He's got all these connections to MIT, to Caltech. Right. 
you know, he's the guy who was really running the Air Force or the Air Corps yeah, at the time right. and the Army Air Force. So now, you know, we're moving forward and he does something pretty unique in the sense of getting Carmen, who really does a study of the German Air Force. And we know that he passes away in 1950. So mm-hmm. this is 1945. He's a one-star, two-star, three-star. Now he's a four-star. Yeah. And finally becomes a five-star general. That's right. The only one that was both in the Army and the Air Corps. So let's talk about that period of time in his life where he's kind of, the war is ending, he's kind of concluding it, and also about maybe something on, you know, he was pretty sick at the time yeah. uh, for a number of heart attacks. Yeah, uh, this is a guy who uh, who ran himself into the ground. Now, a lot of this is a whole lot of flying in unpressurized airplanes, okay? I mean, he is flying all the time. He is literally not sitting at a desk anymore than he has to. Uh, so he's running himself into the ground, and he knows it. And he's in a hurry, but he's going to win this thing, and he's also going to see it on to the next stage. He already knows by sometime in 1944 that they're not going to lose. But, okay, how soon is it going to be? What's the best way? How not to get more people killed? All those kind of questions, of course. So he says, okay, I, I need to figure out where we're going here. And by the way, I want this, I want this German tech. I want all of it. So he puts together the whole uh, von Karman thing and a few other people to go over and get what they can get. Go capture the files, go get the models, go get whatever you can get and sends them off to do it. He also asked von Karman to put together a group of uh, researchers, scientists, and thinkers, and he wants a roadmap for the next 50 years for the, uh, for the Air Force. And they create what is called the Scientific Advisory Board, which still exists today, um, which are outside people like that who uh, advise the chief. Some chiefs care about this, some don't, uh, but it's still relevant today. He, Hap Arnold is writing about satellites and, and missiles and, and electric uh, guidance systems, as they call it. We would call them computers now. He's writing about all these things, you know, that in the future you don't have to have a man in the weapon system to have it effective. He's already talking about uh, munitions of all kinds. He knows about the bug from World War One, and he's they, the army has done uh, TV guided glided bombs in World War Two as a result of that. He's already there. Um, almost everything that he imagines is what we talk about today. He already knows about air-to-air refueling, uh, jet engines. He's just satisfied with that. He knows the prop engine uh, fighters of his time are over. Uh, he remembers the experience from World War I where they had all these junk airplanes and engines they couldn't get rid of for 10 or 15 years. And that's why he orders destroyed all of those surplus airplanes uh, because he doesn't want the Army stuck with them for 10 or 20 years because they're obsolete. He does, however, say, and this is for our museum friends, he says, we must keep some of every type. And that becomes the basis of the collection for the Smithsonian and for the Air Force Museum. But he's not going to sit there and say the Army is going to fly P-51s until 1955. And that's what he was terrified of. Uh, And he accomplishes all of those things. Well, this has been uh, about the the best spent time I've had in a long time listening uh, along with you, Robert, recounting the stories and telling us the history Mm. and the insights. And You know, 75th anniversary of the Air Force wouldn't be without Hap Arnold's. It would be very different. Uh, There were a lot of good quality people available uh, in 1939, but I think that the breadth and the unique experience he brings to that moment is what really makes the difference. One of the Brits said, I was quoted as saying, he says, he sees both the forest and the trees. Yeah, Uh, that's a great quote. 
Well, thank you, Robert Arnold, for joining us. Enjoyed being with all of you. And uh, thanks again for the opportunity. Man, John, we've got the best job in the business sitting here and talking to these wonderful people, you know, the ones who themselves impacted history or the descendants of them, like today with Robert Arnold. You know, what I loved about this, I, I like to think I know a little bit about this and a little bit about that. I had no idea what a scoundrel Hap Arnold was. <laughs> well, he definitely was a survivor. General Arnold survived many times where his uh, career was at risk. I mean, from yes. the very earliest years when he got a bad evaluation to the time that, you know, he was tied up with, with uh, Billy Mitchell. But all through it, everybody recognized what his true essence was, his true leadership, his true ability to look to the future for air power. What an amazing individual and yeah, a true yeah. father of the United States. Absolutely, absolutely right. And, and that, that was just really, really good. Yeah. All right, John. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Behind the Wings, episode number eight. Thanks for listening. And be sure to visit wingsmuseum.org to join the conversation and access the show notes. Now, we're going to be back soon with another episode of Behind the Wings. In the meantime, head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to subscribe and leave a review. All right. And it sure does help us an awful lot. We appreciate it. And we'll see you soon. How about next time on Behind the Wings? <laughs>